Well, we are in part four of a series on the books of Thessalonians, two epistles written by Paul. And the premise of our time in these books is this, that from the day Jesus ascended into heaven until now, his followers have always lived in the expectancy of his return. And if you have that hope in you, that hope will impact every day, every decision, the direction of your life. It really, really will. But the premise of Paul's writing is this, that keeping your focus on that day can be rough when you're just trying to survive this day. That's the premise. And so he writes to the Thessalonians, people that he loves so much, and and he corrects a few misconceptions about the coming of the Lord. We're going to talk about one tonight. And he teaches us that the purpose of prophecy is not just to speculate or certainly not to argue. It's to motivate us to live in light of the end. In chapter 1, Paul commends them for being followers of their leaders. And he commends them for being examples that other believers and other churches even could follow. And, and he, com- he ends that chapter by commending them for living in light of the end. Being ready for Jesus to return. Longing and expecting his return. In chapter 2, Paul has to do something that's a little distasteful to him, but he has to do it more than once in his writings. He defends his life and his ministry because he's under attack by the very same enemies who actually were successful in driving him out of Thessalonica prematurely at risk to his own life. And so he expresses his love and his gratitude for these believers because although Paul has enemies, these people are not his enemies. They love him. He shepherded them and pastored them and prayed for them. And so although the devil hindered Paul's plans to go back to Thessalonica, Paul ended up saying, well, I'll just come up with another plan. And he wrote these two epistles. And 2,000 years later, we're still reading and studying and being blessed by these epistles. So take that, Satan, in Jesus' name. In chapter 3, Paul encourages them. We talked about this last week. He encourages them to become established as growing Christians. Don't just stalemate. Don't just be content with the status quo, but establish yourself. Stand strong in the middle of adverse circumstances. And and, and we read in chapter 3 that Paul had actually sent Timothy, when he couldn't go, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica uh, to, to pastor them and to teach them the word. And Timothy had come back to Paul with glowing reports of these believers. And again, Paul is just so thankful. And he promises them that I'm going to pray for you. And I want you to keep growing in love one for another. And I want you to keep growing in holiness of life because we are living in light of the end. And then in chapter 4, we just did a section of it last week. The apostle exhorts them, you guard yourself against the immorality that is rampant in the culture around you. The Roman Empire was not a, a picnic to live for God, and it's not today either. And he says, keep yourself clear of sexual sin. Keep yourself clean. Uh, remain separate from the immoral culture that's everywhere around you. And, and then we finished last week, and, and we had some uh, fun, and Pastor even got to uh, do a couple of hopefully anointed rants. It was wonderful. You may not have enjoyed it, but I had a blast. It was awesome. Paul says, I want you to remember that you've got to live authentically. 
You've got to live honestly before those that are without, non-believers. You've got to live transparent lives. And here's why. Because the last thing they needed and the last thing we need in a culture that's looking for any excuse to pick apart the church is a bunch of Christians with bad testimonies. That is the last thing we need. And I'll spare you. I won't go back through all of that. But Paul says, if we are truly choosing to live in light of the end, we choose to live in these ways because we are expecting the Lord's return. He uses a, a Greek word, parousia, and, 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 and it, it, we'll talk about it tonight because he uses it again at the end of chapter 4. But parousia was a formal visit by royalty. It was a, a, a word that they used in the Roman Empire. If a royal person was coming and they were visiting that was parousia. In the, in the New Testament church, they just took that and they adapted it and they used it of Jesus coming because they felt like the king is going to come and we're expecting him and we're living in light of his return. Now, we are going to spend this Bible study, uh, we are going to talk about uh, just a handful of verses. We're going to talk about, um, f- about five, six verses tonight. That's all. Don't get your hopes up. But we're only going to talk about five or six verses. That doesn't mean we're going to be five or six minutes. The pagan world of Paul's day had absolutely no hope of life after death. You can actually read inscriptions from ancient graves, ancient tombstones. One of them from Paul's time says this. I was not, I became. I am not, I care not. It was just this fatalistic look at life that after you die, there's no hope. Or we don't know if there's any hope. There were a few philosophers like Socrates that tried to encourage people by writing about happiness after death, but the pagan world of Paul's day had absolutely no sure word of assurance. And so the believers in Thessalonica, they heard all of this in their culture. It was what the philosophers talked about. It was what people talked about. It was the common idea. And so they had a question. They'd received the gospel, and they believed in Jesus, and they were expecting his return, but they had a question. They had a misconception about the coming of the Lord. And here was their question, a very sincere question. What happens to my loved ones who have died? I'm alive, so if Jesus comes back, I'm here ready to receive him. But the world around me says that there's nothing after death. There's no hope after death. So what happens to my departed loved ones when Jesus returns? That was their concern. And so Paul begins to address that. And this is a very familiar but powerful passage of Scripture. He says in chapter 4, verse 13, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. I don't want you to be uninformed about this. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Paul sets out to correct the faulty ideas of the pagan world. And just like today, the faulty ideas of the culture around the church It leaned one of two ways with regard to death, and it's the same today. When you talk to people about death, when you maybe attend a funeral service or whatever, 
uh, the ideas that people have lean one of two ways. Either they lean toward fantasy, that everybody's going to go to heaven regardless of what they did and how they lived. It's kind of a fantasy. You know, somebody can be an axe murderer, but they're going to be walking the streets of gold, and, you know, that's the fantasy. But the other one is equally tragic, and it leans toward the other extreme, fatalism. We don't know what's going to happen. We can't know what's going to happen, and so we can't affect the outcome anyway, so there's no need to hope. And the same as Paul's culture, the world today, people, when they think about death and the afterlife, they, they, they think, really, it's fantasy, everybody's great, or it's fatalism, everybody's not so great. Specifically, Paul doesn't want believers, like you and me, to have anxiety over deceased believers that have died before us. And he says right here that we sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. We surely mourn their passing. And we definitely miss their presence. But he doesn't want us to mourn and miss them like the world that has no hope of ever seeing them again. Now, notice what he says here. This is absolutely awesome. Paul says that departed believers, those who have died in the faith, they are asleep. Everybody say, asleep. If you're not asleep, say asleep. Very good. Thank you. Paul's not saying that their spirits are asleep. He's just saying their bodies are asleep. Now, medically, we know that death is defined as the cessation, the stopping of all vital functions of the body. When you die, vital functions stop. Heartbeat, breathing, brain activity clinical definition of death. But the Bible's definition of death is given by James and King Solomon and by Paul himself. James said it this way, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Notice his parallel there. He's talking about faith and works, but notice his parallel. As your body without your spirit is dead. That's the parallel. Faith without works is dead, but your body without your spirit is dead. So the Bible would make the case that, yes, clinical death is what it is, but the reason your heart stopped beating and the reason your lungs stopped breathing and the reason your brain stopped having activity is because your spirit, the eternal part of you, slipped away from your body. And so a biblical definition of death is when the spirit leaves the body. Solomon said it this way. Then shall the dust return to earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. So your body may be present with us in a casket for your funeral, but your spirit is not here. Your spirit returns to God who gave it. And Paul said this to the Corinthian church. He said, we are confident, I say. And he said, I am willing rather to be absent from the body. He's torn. He wants to be there for them. But Paul gets beaten up and whipped and thrown in jail and persecuted and stoned and shipwrecked. And he said, if I had my choice, I'd really, really be willing rather to be absent from this body. But because I know if I'm absent from this body, I am present with the Lord. That's where we go after we die. We don't just disappear. And, and we're not just kind of lingering around here. That, that's ghost stories. That's not, that's not Bible. 
Our spirit goes back to God who gave it. That's where the dead are. When Paul declares that departed believers are asleep, that's kind of an odd way to say it. And we've adapted it through the years into our own lingo and language. But, but Paul, he said that for a very specific reason. When he says that your departed loved one is sleeping in death, He's echoing the words of Jesus himself. Jesus was the, the first one who really kind of pushed this idea. It happened one time in the household of a ruler named Jairus. His daughter was sick, and while Jesus was coming with Jairus to the house, that little girl died. And the mourners had already settled in, and they were already doing as their custom was, ripping their garments and pouring dirt on their heads and, 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 and screaming and wailing and crying. It was a very loud, emotional kind of scene when Jesus walked up. And when he was come in, Jesus said to all of them, why do you make all this ado and why are you weeping? Here's what he says. The damsel is not dead. She's just sleeping. Of course, that was radical to them. And they laughed him to scorn. And Jesus got a little intense here. When he had put them all out, he took the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him, and he entered in where the damsel was lying. And he took that little girl by the hand, and he said to her, Talit hakumi, which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, get up. Guess what? That little girl got up. It was just like she had been sleeping. Because to Jesus, death is only like sleep. It happened also at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus. Um, the disciples and Jesus are having this conversation. Uh, you can take comfort if you don't get everything at church because the disciples were a little thick-headed sometimes. Um, Jesus would tell them stuff and they would forget it. Jesus would tell them stuff and they would misunderstand it. Jesus would talk about, you know, the bread of heaven, and they would say, oh, he's mad at us. We forgot to bring bread. He, they just totally missed the point all the time, and they missed the point here. They're discussing that Lazarus has died, and Jesus, uh, what are, what are we going to do? Should we go to the funeral and all of that? These things said he, and after that he said to his disciples, our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I'm going that I may awake him out of sleep. And the disciples totally missed the point. Here they go. Then said his disciples, well, Lord, that's great. If he's sleeping, he's been sick and it hasn't been very good. And he needs his rest. And if he's sleeping, he's doing well. Now, this isn't in your Bible, but Jesus went. <laughs> I just know he did. How be it? Jesus was speaking of his death. But they thought he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. And then Jesus has to dumb it down for the disciples. 2,000 years later, I think he still has to do it for us sometimes. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, guys, Lazarus is dead. Now, Jesus didn't call death sleep because he was just kind of using weird language or because he was trying to do a play on words. He's not doing it because he's afraid of death. Jesus knows that to be dead is to be dead. But he also knows something else, that he is going to go to the cross 
and go into the grave and conquer the power of death through his resurrection. So Jesus intentionally diminishes the fear of death by calling it sleep. It's not an accident. He does it consistently in the Gospels. He refuses to call death by its authoritative name. He says he's sleeping because I can wake him up. She's sleeping because I can raise her up. Do you know what? Jesus still has that kind of power. And death is not a terror for the child of God because we serve a God for whom death is just like sleep. And this is what Paul wants to teach the, in, in the books of Thessalonians. To Jesus and to all of his believers, to all of his children, death is like sleep. Why? It is temporary. That's why it's like sleep. When you go to sleep at night, you are planning on waking up in the morning. Why? Because sleep is temporary. See, see to us, we think Sleep is temporary and death is permanent, but to Jesus, one is the same as the other. Sleep is temporary and death is temporary. And if anybody proved that death is temporary, it's Jesus who stayed in his grave about three days and three nights, and that was enough. What a God we serve. This is amazing. Um, the point of those stories in the Scripture is that if Jesus ever takes you by the hand like he took that little girl by the hand, you're coming out of death. If Jesus ever calls your name like he called Lazarus' name, you're coming out of death. Our victory over the grave is 100% based on Jesus' victory over the grave. And so Paul continues, he said, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, if we believe that he did that, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. You don't have to worry about your departed loved ones, whether they're going to uh, go to heaven when Jesus comes back. Jesus is going to bring them with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. We're not subscribing to culture. We're not just taking the ideas of the philosophers. This is the word of God. That we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord, we won't prevent them which are asleep. Don't miss what Paul says. Jesus is going to return. And when he returns. He's going to bring all of our departed loved ones with him to that glorious reunion in the air at the moment of the rapture. Now think with me. If they're coming with him to that moment in the air when we rise and they come with them and we all meet, if they're coming with him, where does that where does that put them now? That puts their spirits with him right now. If they're coming with him, they're already with him. It's an amazing hope that we have. Now, no, I don't know how it all works. That's above my pay grade by a long shot. I don't know what the dead know or don't know. I, I haven't got that all figured out. I just know this. Far from being forgotten or left out, which was the fear of these people, my loved one, they've already died. If Jesus comes back, they're already dead. They won't go. They, they won't make it. Far from being left out or forgotten, they're coming 
with him. Those that are dead in Christ are going to be his special guests at the rapture. He's going to bring them with him, and we're going to go up to meet him and them, and we are going to have one glorious shout down in the air on the way up. It's amazing. Paul says, those of us who are alive and remain on the earth, we will not prevent, literally, we will not precede the believers who are already asleep in death. We won't get there first. We won't be predominant over them. They will actually get there first because they're coming with him and we'll meet them in the air. But it's not a race, so you can relax if you're competitive. It's not a race. It's a reunion like your mind cannot comprehend or conceive. What a day that's going to be. Paul specifically says, I never knew this. I learned this studying for you precious people. Paul specifically states that our loved ones, look at, look at the phrase, they sleep in Jesus. They sleep in Jesus. I never knew this. That phrase could be translated accurately as they were put to sleep by Jesus. And the image is so beautiful and so powerful. Just like a parent lovingly puts their little child to bed when they are tired, Jesus lovingly reaches down and puts his saints to sleep when it's their time. He lovingly takes them from this life at precisely the right time, when their bodies are worn out, when they can't take one more step, when they need rest, or when their work on earth is done. Just like a parent would take an overtired child that they love and gently and lovingly lay them in a bed at night, and the child doesn't want to go to bed, but the parent knows They've got to go to sleep. Jesus, at precisely the right moment, reaches down into the lives of his children and says, it's time. Here's what I know about this Jesus. You can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your loved ones. You can trust him with your future. They are asleep in Jesus, or literally, Jesus put them to sleep. Oh my goodness, what a hope we have. It's amazing. While I was studying for tonight to, to be able to teach you precious people, I'm so grateful for you. I was reminded of an old song by the late Reverend Merle Ewing. Um, it was written by his wife, Joan. Sister Joan Ewing is an absolute sweetheart. She's one of my uh, favorite ladies in all the world. She's um, elderly now. She, um, she's legally blind, has been for years. But that lady can pen a song. And uh, I, I, uh, when I see her anywhere, I just make my way to her and kind of get down on my uh, knees in front of her so I, she can hear m my voice. And we have a little chat. And she's just one of my favorites. The very first album that Brother Ewing ever recorded the song that I thought of today and the title of the album was Your Rides on the Way. And that song, Sister Ewing wrote it 
It tells the true story of a young lady in Pastor Tommy Craft's church in Jackson, Mississippi. And this really happened many years ago. And the liner notes on the back of the album, I was able to pull up a picture of it online today and read the liner notes and wrote them down. They, they, they weave this beautiful story. And here's what was written. It's amazing. What a story. She was almost 21. In 30 minutes, it would be midnight. It had been a long road from Helen's first ride on the old Sunday school bus 10 years ago to this night. But cancer is no respecter of persons. And in the springtime of her life, Helen Packer was dying. Pastor Kraft, the family, and a few friends waited in the hospital corridor. The deafening midnight silence was broken by a voice over the intercom. Telephone call for Helen Packer. Anybody who knew her would know she was dying. So the pastor went to the front desk to take the message for her. To this day, the caller remains unidentified. He just left a message which read, tell Helen Packer her ride is on the way. And a little after midnight, Helen took her last ride. And at home, it is springtime, and she is forever 21. Mm. And I thought of it, and it's old, and I'm old, so. But they gave me the mic. Some of you may remember this. Most of you young folks, you have no idea. But the chorus of this beautiful little song by Sister Ewing. Pack up, get ready to leave. Tell all your friends not to grieve. It's been mostly walking long weary days walking's bowed over your ride's on the way <laughs> I like that do you know that the hope we have is not conditioned on you at all if you have a relationship with God, you don't have to have any power to get you from here to there. He's going to do it by the Spirit of God that dwells in you. And looking around the world we live in today, I'd say, walk-ins bowed over your rides on the way. <laughs> Thank you, Kathy. Here's the point Paul's trying to make. Whether we live or whether we die, Jesus is either going to come with us or for us. One way or the other, the family of God 
is headed for this glorious reunion. He's either going to bring us with him or he's going to call for us and we're going to join him and them and so shall we ever be with the Lord. What a hope. What a hope. Paul says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And those people you're concerned about, Thessalonians, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain, we don't miss out. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. You know what we call that? The rapture, that's what we call that. You hear about the rapture around church. Well, let me tell you something. The word rapture is not in the Bible. But the word rapture comes from Paul's phrase right here when he says, we will be caught up. When he says caught up, that's what we call the rapture. So how do we get that word? Well, the Greek word is harpazo, and it means snatched away. And then the Latin language came along. The Romans invented that. And the Latin term is raptus. And that's where we get the word and the doctrine of the rapture. It's when God comes and snatches us away. And the word denotes this sense of pure, sheer joy. Not a sense of fear and dread. Not a sense of anxiety and nervousness. But a sense of sheer joy at the prospect of being snatched away from the earth. The rapture is not going to be like somebody being kidnapped. Let me tell you what the rapture is going to be like. It's going to be like a laughing daddy letting his little girl come running toward him and he takes her in his arms and lifts her up and snatches her off the ground. That's the rapture. You never felt joy like you're going to feel on rapture day. You've never felt excitement like you're going to feel on rapture day. You've never felt hope like you're going to have the moment you realize it was all worthwhile. Every long mile of this trip, every trial of a dreary journey, you are going to be overcome with sheer pure joy. At the moment of the rapture, it's going to be like a dad sweeping up a little girl into his arms. The word harpazo can also have other meanings that add to the beauty and the power of the rapture. Harpazo can also mean to snatch away speedily because the rapture will happen in the twinkling of an eye. The word harpazo can mean to claim for oneself because on that day we will be declared the bride of Christ. That word harpazo can also mean to rescue from danger because there's a tribulation coming to this earth, but God is going to come and rescue his church. It can mean, harpazo can mean to move to a new place because the new Jerusalem is nothing like down here. 
I'm glad you have a beautiful province to live in, a beautiful city to enjoy, and a beautiful home that is your own. I'm glad about that. But you cannot imagine the new Jerusalem. We are moving to a much better, much greater place for all eternity. And finally, harpazo can mean to seize by force. Because there's not one thing the devil can do to stop the rapture of the church. He can fight. He can threaten. He can try to curse us and hurt us. But there is not one thing the devil can do to stop the rapture of the church. Because on that day, at that moment, God is going to come, overcome every resistance to his word and to his church. And we get to go to heaven forever. (laughs) Hmm. The Lord, the Bible says, will return with a shout of command. Just like he did outside the tomb of Lazarus. We don't know what he's going to shout. Maybe he'll shout, come forth again. Maybe he'll shout, come up. Maybe he'll shout, come to me. I don't know what he's going to shout. One preacher a few years back suggested, I think the Lord's going to shout one word. Enough! Enough suffering, enough heartbreak, enough death and crying, enough cancer, enough, enough. My people have had enough. And on that day, I don't know what he's going to shout, but I know whatever he shouts, whenever he shouts it, all of this junk is going to be over. All of the pain and the heartbreak and the heartache, it is done. No more chronic pain, no more sickness, no more hospitals, no more funeral homes, no more death, no more graveyards. Enough. It's over. Come up. Come here. Come to me. What a day that's going to be. My goodness. Jesus said, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. I don't know what he's going to shout, but here's what I do know. That shout is going to impact every graveyard on this planet that contains a child of God. But resurrection is not reconstruction. Our loved ones will not be returned to weak, diseased, crippled, dying bodies. Resurrection is not reconstruction. They will receive a glorified body just like Jesus has now. (laughs) No more chair, Brother Larry. No more pain, Brother Larry. No more braces. What a day that's going to be. My goodness. We're going to receive our glorified bodies when we meet him and them in the air. The Bible says the, with the voice of the archangel because the angels don't understand this. They, they, the angels have no clue why God puts up with us. They have no idea why. Because angels live in heaven. They have celestial bodies and they, they're not tempted by the things you're tempted by and they don't understand why we fall and fail and we're fragile and fickle and then God forgives us and picks us back up and restores us and lets us come to church and worship him, the angels. It just boggles their brains. They, if they have brains, I don't know. But, but, but it just, they, they can't understand. But on that day, when they see the church of all the ages come up 
into the air and head toward the new Jerusalem. There's going to be a voice of the angels. The angels are going to celebrate on that day. And the Bible says the trumpet will sound. That's why you hear songs and why we preach sermons about the trumpet is going to sound because that's what the Bible says. Now, Jewish people were very familiar with trumpets because trumpets were used to declare battle and trumpets were used to announce celebrations and trumpets were used to gather people together for a journey. That's what trumpets were used for. And even in the pagan Roman world, trumpets were used to announce the arrival of a royal person. And that's what the rapture is. So one more time, Paul uses his term parousia, the coming of the Lord in verse 15. That's a common term in his day for visits by royalty. And this is how the New Testament church described the rapture. Royalty is coming. The king is coming. The Lord is coming. Jesus is coming. And so they talked about that all the time. Paul wrote this scripture to the Corinthians and we read it at gravesides. We need to refresh it in our minds when we're not standing around an open grave. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We're not all going to die before he comes back. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We're all going to receive that glorified body. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, faster than you can think it, at the last trump, for I like to read this with emphasis when I have the honor of standing at a graveside, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. There's nothing hell can do about it. There's nothing the devil can do to prevent it. We shall be changed. We shall rise. We shall be with Jesus. The resurrection assures us that death is not the end. Your obituary, fine as it may be, is not the end. Your funeral, as dignified an occasion as we can put on for you, your funeral is not the end. Your grave in that graveyard is not the end. Yes, your body goes to sleep when you die, but your spirit goes to be with the Lord. And when the Lord returns, he will raise your body body in glory, not in pain, in glory, not in weakness, in glory, not in sickness. He will raise your body in glory and reunite it with your spirit. And Paul just says, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. As Paul refers to our departed loved ones on rapture day, he uses this phrase. He said, we're going to join them together with them in the clouds. I know it's Wednesday night, and I know you've probably had a long day, maybe a burdensome week. But can you for just a moment imagine the sheer joy of that reunion? Death is the great separator down here. But on that day, Jesus will be the great reuniter on that day. <laughs> on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' disciples 
immediately recognized Moses and Elijah, think, even though they had never met them before on this earth. But when they saw them on the Mount of Transfiguration, they knew it was Moses and Elijah. So yes, all of the saints of God are going to know each other in glory. Even saints you've never met before on this earth, you're going to walk up to them like a long lost family member and give them a hug. You're going to know them as well as you know yourself. That's the hope we have. Just a couple hours ago, we had the honor and the privilege at 5 o'clock in the afternoon here, hooking up with our brothers and sisters in Guangzhou, China, at 5 a.m. on Thursday morning there before they all go off to work. And what a beautiful prayer meeting we had together. But you don't know them. You've never met them. Some of them you couldn't pick out of a crowd of three. You couldn't. You've never seen them before. But when you get to heaven and you come this way on the streets of gold and they come this way on the streets of gold, you're going to know them instantly just like the disciples knew Moses and Elijah. It is going to be one great grand day. It is going to be one glorious, amazing occasion when the saints of all the ages, when the saints from every nation when the saints from every kindred and tribe and tongue land on the streets of gold and forever we get to be with the Lord. Come on back, Kathy. Down through the centuries, millions of Christians have lived out their days and their weeks and their months and their years with an expectation. That's what Paul's trying to get to us. An expectation. It's not always in the forefront of their thoughts, but it's never completely out of their thoughts. It's always there, an expectation. It hovers just over the horizon of their daily responsibilities and their job and their family and their house and their car and their cares. It's always just hovering there. It's like the first pale shaft of sunlight from a rising sun in the morning. And that expectation, that hope, it's, it's, it's like a silent companion. It's a comforting presence. It never leaves them. And that expectation that from the time of the book of Acts until today, that expectation that has always been part of the lives of the children of God, that expectation is this that before I take my next breath, before I take my next step, before I blink my eye, before the next tick of the clock or beat of my heart, Jesus could descend from heaven with a shout and I'm instantly gone. That's the expectation. That is the hope. That is the motivation for God's people who live in light of the end. That hope is called the rapture. And that hope is absolutely real. It's more real than the seat you are seated on. 
it's more real than the car that brought you here tonight. The rapture is real and the rapture is soon and the rapture is going to be one triumphant day for the church of the living God. And that's why Paul ends this chapter with these words. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. This is what the early church did. You've heard this. You know this. We greet each other. We'll say, praise the Lord. And everybody echoes, praise the Lord. And uh, in casual conversation, we'll say hello. And they say hello. But the early church, they greeted each other with Maranatha. When they saw each other in the market, when they saw each other coming into the church, when they saw each other wherever it might be, the first century church, this expectation was so real to them. They would say, Maranatha, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. I know YouTube and Facebook and your job and your career and your education your bills and your house and your car and the repairs and I know it keeps your mind so preoccupied what Paul's trying to do with these believers is to say we live in light of the end you don't have to worry about your departed loved ones. We didn't lose them. We know where they are. They might not be with you, but they are with Jesus, and you're going to get to see them again very soon. Why? Because Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Paul wrote those words 2,000 years ago at the beginning of the church age. He lived every day in expectation of the Lord's return. He said, I, I want to stay here with you and pastor you, but I sure would love to go to be with Jesus. He lived with that expectation. If he had that kind of expectation and the church had that kind of hope at the beginning of the church age, what kind of expectation and what kind of hope should we have at the end of the church age? when the world is reeling and rocking and society is heaving and, and convulsing and the signs of the times are everywhere. Aren't you scared? No, I'm excited. Aren't you terrified? No, I'm anticipating. Don't you get sad? Oh yeah, yeah. But it's only temporary because Jesus is coming. Don't you miss the saints that have passed from the scene in our church? Oh my goodness, we miss them sometimes. Every service we think of one or more of them. <laughs> but it's just sleep. Sleep to the child of God is about the same as death. Because of Jesus, they are both temporary. We will soon see him. And we will soon see them. So, church, comfort one another with these words. You don't like politics? Comfort one another with these words. You don't like all the immorality in the world around you that's so hard to deal with and so hard to understand some of the things that are being espoused today by so many people? 
comfort one another with these words. You're in the trial of your life. You don't see an end to the diagnosis. Comfort one another with these words. You're having kind of strife and battles and the devil has been attacking your faith. Comfort one another with these words. Jesus is coming. My goodness. You feel it just like I do. You're just trying to be polite and listen. Listening's over. Would you lift up your hands and your voice? <laughs> this is our hope. This isn't just what we preach. This is what we live for. This isn't just the song we sing. This is what we live for. Jesus is coming. And when he comes, it's all over. Sickness is over. Death is over. Heartache is over. Heartbreak is over. Trouble is over. Trials are over. Death itself is over. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Oh, my. <laughs> what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, though I